we should be going. We're recording now. Uh, let's go ahead and do the All intro right. one more time. Um, how's it going? Oh, God. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Christian, and welcome to Liberty After Dark. Today, I have with me the venerable Patrick Smith, and I'm going to use that word again for those of you who don't know who are watching this and, or listening to it in podcast land. We had a little bit of technical difficulties there, but um, yeah, how's it going? It's going good, man. The very, very, very venerable Patrick Smith is uh, doing well. <laughs> it sounds like a title of prestige. I don't know. I, that's why it just it seemed to work in the situation. It may not be technically accurate. It's pres- It's the kind of prestige you get for being old, I think, is what it is. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> one day I hope to be as venerable as you are then. <laughs> Respect your elders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cool. So, well, it's good to be here. I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to the conversation. I think this is a core. I think this is a fundamental topic to that that all sort of liberty philosophers should be versed in almost before anything else. Like this comes before all of your fancy newfangled moral philosophies. <laughs> I'm going to use the old guy voice a lot in this video. No, um, yeah, it's 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 core. And um, and it's also one of the most misunderstood things. Uh, and I, I don't want to like, I don't know where, where if you have a flow for the show and I'm interrupting it, please continue. I was just going to give give a rant on on the state of nature. Yeah, well, it's exactly I wanted to do just take a little bit of time real quick just to introduce the topic for anybody who may not be aware. Today, we're going to be talking about the state of nature and we're going to go through a little bit of definitions. And I have Patrick here to both help me explain the idea and give opinions and voices that you may not get if it was just me, someone I respect a lot on the topic. And also, if we run into any points of disagreement somewhere along the line, like we talked about, this is super base level stuff. So this is a great opportunity to kind of work through these things, make sure we're all on the same page. Because if we can't, if we can't agree what the state of nature is, we've got a lot of, uh, of work before we can start building upwards. So, uh, Patrick, why don't you go ahead and define the state of nature as you see it? And then we'll kind of incorporate some other ideas people might be familiar of. The reason why it's fundamental is because the state of nature is reality. It is what is. It is it's the A equals A. It's the what we perceive. It's the world we live in. It's how the actual mechanics of existence function. Nothing more. Nothing more than that. And what that means is when a lion is hungry, he'll kill something and eat it. And he has no conception of morality. He has no conceptions about society. He's got no moral theories or frameworks in play. Uh, the, the, a rock and a tree and an ant and uh, a, a giraffe. Uh, these are state of nature is what I would say. State of nature creatures, meaning they're not higher functioning minds that can apply layers of thought and concept to life and to their interactions with other beings and to their interactions with the universe. None of that. This is all higher. Like the state of nature is all under that. This is the bare metal sort of operating system of life is the state of nature. And a lot of moral philosophies just seem to skip right over it and just sort of fingers in the ears, move past it. Like it doesn't exist. And like they, they can dic- well. I don't want to get too far down the path, but the last <laughs> thing I'll say for now is that uh, they they talk as if things exist in reality that don't, 
And I think that's probably a good entry summary of the state of nature and why it's important. Yeah. And so people who are familiar with philosophy are probably familiar with the big three state of natures that exist in, in Enlightenment philosophy. And that's the Hobbesian, Lockean, and the Rousseau. And of those three, Hobbes, in my opinion, is the closest. It's it's a state of equality and not equality in the sense that we are all born equal to have an equal number of things, but that the differences between humans are minuscule enough that in a, in a survival situation, there are no natural born tyrants. That's what Hobbes means by equality. Uh, and then there is conflict and then that conflict drives to inevitable war. Um, Locke, on the other hand, which is kind of contradictory to one of the things that you were talking about, believes that rationality is a key part of state of nature beings. And that's how a lot of the decisions are, uh, we'll say, delineated across the uh, spectrum of rights, which grows directly from his state of nature ideology, but is not entirely dissimilar from Hobbesian other than that perspective. And then you have Rousseau, who's on the complete other side of things, looking at this from the perspective of a child, thinking that the state of nature is this wonderful, oh, sorry, my dog is about to pull the cord out from the computer. Okay, you need to stop, buddy. Your show is exciting, man. All yeah. kinds of unexpected things happen. <laughs> I saw him out of the corner of my eye and like, I don't know if you saw it, but like my eyes got super wide and I was like, he's about to like, just walk directly through this cable. So, okay. He's back over there now. But as I was saying, uh, Rousseau looked at all of this from the perspective of a child developing and he said, okay, well, children must be what the state of nature is because they haven't been influenced by society. And what do we know about children? Children are creative. Children love to, you know, they love family. They love making friends, et cetera, yada, yada. Like, yeah, they may fight over things a little bit, but at the end of the day, everybody just goes home and sucks on their binky or whatever. And uh, that's probably the one I disagree with the least, but so many modern philosophies rely on. Uh, would you say it's a fair comparison to say that Hobbes has one of the most accurate, if not the most accurate conception of the state of nature? Yes, generally I uh, align most with the Hobbesian definition of the state of nature, though I may take it a little bit farther in some areas. You're going to have to show the dog. Like, you got to show off the dog. You have the best dog in the world. Oh, he's he steps on his own ears. That's how awesome he is. It's so cool. He's got the coolest dog. Yeah, he's he's. I love him to death. That's why I'm willing to do things like get up in the middle of a show or I'm talking to somebody and go put him up on the bed. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I would say the same thing. So Hobbes to me was my first introduction to the state of nature where I was like, okay, this, this seems like an actual observation of reality. Uh, and it's important to note that unlike what we are mostly talking about, they're looking at this strictly from the perspective of human beings. They're not kind of lumping them in like with the animals or with the rocks or anything like that. So they have a very narrow focus on the state of nature. Uh, Hobbes is very, actually, he's very clear. He delineates this specifically in the Leviathan, that there's something else that is outside of this that everything else falls into. And I think, and you might agree on this, that it's unnecessarily preferential treatment towards humans to make that delineation mm -hmm. between us and animals, right? Uh, arbitrary. Arbitrary. Yeah. And that's the key word for me that bothers me most is we can't have arbitrary elements in our logic and and think that they're uh, worthy. And I liked what you said about observation of reality being the state of nature. Like it's, it's getting rid of the preconceived notions. It's getting rid of all of the complexities that 
humans like to overlay on reality. And it's just, look, when you look out on the world, this is the state of nature. This is how it is. This is how it functions. Now you can, you can put all kinds of thought on top of that and you can make all agreements with people and build societies on top of it. But all of that is outside and comes after what we're talking about today. Exactly. One of the big things that I think gets a lot of people is that they, they want to abstract the state of nature further than it has to be. Like you were saying, like they want Mm. to, they want, they don't, the state of nature is honestly kind of a little boring if you fully understand it, because it's your, it's almost an intuitive conception of the way reality works. It's the, it's, you know, it's the way we're taught reality works. You know, the reason you don't go hug a bear is because a bear has, is a state of nature being, and you understand the risks associated with that. But when, <laughs> when we talk about it in philosophy, we like, uh, I say we, a lot of people like to pretend that there's more to it than that. And that's one of the, the one of the biggest things that I wanted to address today is that it's simple, but in a devilish kind of way to where it almost seems like it should be wrong. It's so simple. But so if somebody came to you and was trying to get in a, like a perfect encapsulation of how you could prove the existence of the state of nature, what would be the first thing that came to your mind as far as how to address that? How to prove the existence of the state of nature? Yeah, let's say they rejected the idea of the state of nature altogether. They thought it was just some... Oh, like solipsism? Yeah, what do you something mean? to that. Well, more to the se- to the extent that there there is no state of nature for humans, like uh, almost like a a uh, in our conception of it, where humans are essentially equivalent to animals in the fact that they have very limited conceptions of uh, rights outside of anything that we create, and that. There's a constant competition for resources and therefore war. Uh, like a, a Rousseau state of nature person essentially does not believe in the state of nature that, that we're talking about at all. So how would you sell that to them, that this is how reality is? I mean, I would just point to reality. And, you know, it, you know so I think the burden of proof yeah. was shifted in what you just did. Like, it's not on me to prove that Rousseau is wrong. It's on Rousseau to prove that he has something over and above and beyond what actually exists. So I'm just like pointing to what's around us and to our observations and saying, well, look, you know, when you punch somebody um, against their consent, an anvil doesn't fall out of the sky to crush that person. You know, there's nothing beyond what is in reality that we don't create ourselves. And so if he if he has the positive claim that there is something additional uh, to the state of nature, then it's on him. That's what I would say. It's it's burden of proof (laughs) is not on me. Well, that's actually exactly what I was looking for. Um, Take him, take him, take him hiking. You know, that's uh, even even if you shift the burden of proof, I think this is this is so grounded in reality it's by no means a difficult task to demonstrate the state of nature. Uh, you can look at this from multiple different perspectives. If you want to do so culturally, uh, talk about the state of nature is, is uneven because we can demonstrate this in a lot of cultures that exist today that we one might consider uh, aboriginal, we'll say, or, or natives to certain populations that have very limited senses of social structure compared to what we would look at today. Something that might form in a state of nature very reasonably. Like we see in, in uh, not to be condescending, but in other creatures like wolves or apes or something, build social structures as well. And so if someone was to say, you're incredibly correct and fair in saying that the burden of proof is not on you uh, after the observation. But there, I think, are enough observations available to 
very quickly and poignantly points to examples of the state of nature as a a sort of Hobbesian interpretation, though, like you said, there is a bit of an expansion upon this. And I I think it bears, um, if we're going to keep talking about Hobbes, a lot of people, they only know the term Hobbes or Hobbesian in a very negative colloquial connotation. Like they think anytime somebody says the word Hobbesian, it means like apocalyptic um, (laughs) dystopia, right? And I I think for, I I don't know who, what who your target audience is for the show, but if it is normie, normie types, people that are not, or that are learning philosophy, I think it would bear you maybe um, quickly explaining what Hobbesian means to somebody that knows Hobbes, Hobbes work. Yeah. So it kind of goes over what I, what I talked about in his explanation of the state of nature. It's the state of equality, conflict, and therefore warfare. And he delineates conflict and warfare to mean groups of individual or individuals versus and individuals having, let's say over a scarce resource, having conflict. And that will inevitably to at some point scale up, which we have in the modern day with society. So I kind of personally found it a little bit of a useless delineation, but he, that's what he makes. And there's nothing in there that necessarily says, you know, this is like Mad Max people driving around in, you know, fast cars and leather straps looking for gasoline or anything. Uh, it, it literally is simply that it is that there are no natural born tyrants and that there will be conflict over scarce resources, something that exists with society and without society. So when I say Hobbesian, I'm I'm literally just trying to give away those things to anybody who's listening, not any sort of, like I said, Mad Max or Fallout, uh, just total negative, you know, like you said, dystopia or apocalyptic scenario that could possibly exist. Uh, Hobbesian, Hobbesian oh, state of nature exists oh, oh. everywhere. Yeah. Also, I, I think it bears pointing out that Hobbes himself wasn't uh, like promoting this state of nature. He was yes. describing it and then building on that as a definition, not trying to promote uh, the state of nature as something that people should want to live in. Like that, Hobbes was not an asshole, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, and he was not an anarchist either. Uh, I mean, the whole Leviathan is, is basically defending the monarchy. So, you know, he, yep. he just happens to have a, what I believe to be a, a pretty solid interpretation of the state of nature at the time. Yeah. And like you said, it, it was a recognition of his, his, uh, introspection or his examination of the state of nature and putting it to paper. You know, it wasn't any sort of necessary. It, there was a prescription to it in the sense that conflict is something we tend to avoid. So maybe we shouldn't do this. But other than that, there wasn't any sort of like inherent moral evil to the state of nature in Hobbes's work. So it was, it was a very yep. utilitarian perspective on, in his opinion, why the state of nature should be avoided, which is also something I believe. So, <laughs> And, it, and it's also a healthy way to begin. Um, you you can't build a house. So you can't build any kind of moral philosophy or moral framework on top of um, an inaccurate foundation. And so understanding what um, exists as a baseline, what what you what we all begin from, what the world begins from um, is the only way to begin when trying to construct something on top of that. And that's where I'll most dare I say most. Yeah, most most moral philosophies. Um, make their first mistake is in not beginning with uh, what exists, what is real and how it functions. 
Exactly. And, and real quick, before we move off of the comparisons of the other uh, philosophers' works in the state of nature and move on to more of like a an application or what this means for philosophy kind of thing, I want to point that a lot of times I'll have people who are big fans of Locke. I mean, he's an extremely influential fl- philosopher for hundreds of years. He probably will be influential until, you know, humanity stops remembering he existed. But his interpretation of the state of nature specifically equivocates reason as an attribute of the state of nature. And the reason that I, I, you know, not to speak for you, but the reason I personally don't like the Lockean interpretation is because of that specifically, because it doesn't address any of the unreasonable behavior that happens between animals and humans and why therefore his conception of of natural rights sort of falls through because i believe it's based on a false premise but would you agree with that yeah i mean humans are the outlier humans are the only species that we know of on the planet that can reason at the conceptual level that we can i mean there's some gray areas with certain species of course but i mean there's still a large gap even with the best case examples of another creature that can rationalize reason conceptualize etc uh so to hold to hold to to base the work on humans and rationality as something special i mean the reason why we want to work on these problems is to elevate ourselves out of that existence to to have to lead a better life than a lion can because he's not able to conceptualize these higher ideas and work with his partners to um, lead a more happy, safe life than we can, because we have those capacities. Exactly. Did that answer your question? No, yeah, it, it did. It did, definitely. I, it, It's one of the big ones that I see often, because I, I do believe it is the most popular, uh, unless you like Rousseau, which, you know, at that point, uh, we've got a lot more work to do. But the the Lockean interpretation is definitely the one that I'm I'm most often given as a as a reference of oh well this is how I view the state of nature and I, I think it's unwillingness to equivocate humans with animals in in this sense is a failing of the state of nature because it almost in a sense disarms you from the reality of the state of nature outside of interactions with other people and I understand that in Moral philosophy as we know it today, it's interactions from human to human, but that could one day change. And it's important mm-hmm. to understand where the line is other than human, rational, everything else not rational, because that could one day not be the case. And the entire framework that the whole thing is built on would have to change, unlike in a scenario where all creatures are viewed based off of their capacities to begin with in, in a state of nature. Mm-hmm. In a non-arbitrary fashion, which goes to my earlier point. Yeah, um, you. I think you kind of said this uh, when you said sort of like disarming, removing defense from. It puts you in a more dangerous state of mind in general if you think that humans are somehow above the state of nature and the other creatures that exist in the state of nature and don't have these conceptualizations. If you think that you're safe because of your nature as a human, well, you're going to maybe take less steps to defend yourself or to protect yourself or to keep as safe as you possibly could or otherwise. Um, so, again, like there is there's risk and danger added into the equation when you uh, when your perceptions and understanding of reality differ from reality. And the reality is that we are another creature 
that exists on this planet, just like all the other creatures. And there are humans that behave just like some of the other creatures that cannot um, use reason and logic and consent and concepts like this stuff to, to lead a better life. And these people can and will hurt you. And so if you recognize that we're just creatures like all the rest, then um, you can take steps to better protect yourself. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to pitch something to you because this, I think, is the first time we've had this conversation between each other. And this kind of is also helping to move on into the direction of like how this is involved with voluntarist philosophy more, more explicitly. Mm. And one of the behaviors that I associate with creatures that are state of nature beings is the concept of immediate personal gain or the inability or maybe not the inability, but the unwillingness to accept delayed gratification. Uh, why should I wait when I can take the apple now kind of thing? Uh, mm -hmm. Would you say that's a fair assessment of a state of nature being? Yeah, there's, there's like a minor and a major level of deferred gratification. The minor level is something that, you know, things like squirrels are capable of, like, and, and whether or not they're even doing it because they're aware of it, which is an important distinction for this discussion. But even if they're doing it out of habit, they have this minor ability to stock up on nuts in the tree so that when winter hits, they can eat their stash and survive. Again, if they're not conceptualizing it that way, then the, this discussion doesn't really count for squirrels. Because we're talking about people that actually can have that capacity to say, oh, I'm going to be hungry in the winter, so I should go and do a lot of extra work now for no immediate gain so that in the future I'll have a stash of food to get me through hard times. That's the minor level. Like the advanced level that um, most humans are capable of would be deferring gratification for conceptual reasons. Like I want to understand um, the depths of philosophy better. So rather than go out and have fun and go play or go play video games or go to the park or whatever, uh, I'm going to choose to read a, a book that's 2000 years old full of, you know, really dry content. <laughs> I'm going to defer the gratification of uh, the immediate gratification of video games for the long term, hopefully life. Um, uh, happiness benefiting virtues of studying philosophy. Maybe that was a bad example, but um, <laughs> it, it, like deferring gratification for the purposes of concepts, conceptual goals is I would call the major, the the level two, the, the level up version of deferred gratification. And I think that's really where uh, moral agency begins to kick in because do you want me to get into this now? I don't want to take your show. I, I want to no, let you drive means. the bus. So, by okay. means. So yeah. the, re the reason why that level, that additional or higher level of conceptualization is important for moral philosophy is because that's what rights are. That's what morals are. They are nothing more than concepts. And again, this will this this contravenes a lot of moral philosophies just saying that in and of itself. Uh, morality, moral rules are concepts that we hold between our two ears and that we defer immediate gratification in the pursuit of which um, is is it, it embodies that higher level of deferred gratification that I'm talking about. So to add to exist as um, an entity above the sort of state of nature, a instant gratification, might makes right uh, sort of existence um, Hobbesian. 
<laughs> dare I say it, uh, existence to elevate ourselves out of that. We have to be able to hold these advanced concepts and then um, hurt ourselves in the short term in the pursuit of a conceptual future goals. Exactly. Part of the reason why I use the Apple example to set all of this up, why, why shouldn't you take the Apple? You know, what is it that distinguishes someone who is a state of nature being from who is isn't? And the fact that the state of nature being would take the apple, theoretically, and the non-state of nature being or the normal person wouldn't do so, uh, it exactly comes down to sort of what you were talking about, which is a, a cognitive rejection of the state of nature as a vehicle by which to gain. Uh, because there are lots of things that we could do. This is something that I want to make clear every time I talk about the state of nature, is that Anytime someone says, man, you know, I want to do X, Y, Z thing. It's like there's nothing biomechanically stopping you from doing any of those things as a state of nature being. You could do literally anything you want. Everything that is stopping you is conceptual to, to a degree, right? <laughs> uh, unless, you know, you're talking about money or something. But as far as like moving your body or doing something with your limbs that you totally have the physical capacity to do, the only thing that is stopping you is the conceptual. There is no brick wall separating you from your achievement in, in, in the state of nature that keeps you from being there, or there is no invisible hand like you were talking about that comes out and slaps you when you try to take the apple. It's entirely within oneself to not do so. And that is a characteristic that a state of nature being is lacking. And that is probably one of the As, most important. And I'm going to take clothes off on your show. I apologize. I'm no, burning yeah. up here. Woof. It's hot wow. in here. It's getting hot in here now. Jeez. <laughs> it's, about to, it's about to be a state of nature in here. Uh, yeah. uh, no, um, <laughs> I was just, I was just going to back up what you just said with, you know, to show that your argument is not only valid, but sound by pointing out that like, there are plenty of humans that do not choose to restrict their immediate uh, actions based on the long-term concepts that he's describing. So, it's it's almost just readily apparent that not only are humans um, at their base state of nature beings like all the other animals, uh, but that to not realize that, to not recognize that puts you in a more vulnerable position. The other thing I wanted to tease out just to because this this um, this primarily comes up when I debate vegans uh, about moral philosophy, but I think it still illustrates the point between a level one deferred gratification and sort of the leveled up advanced deferred gratification. So you'll have like, let, let's say a normal creature. I put an acorn out on the table in my backyard, uh, some random, whatever will come by and snag it and run off with it. And they will have no compunction about having done. So they'll be perfectly happy to have taken some property that belongs to me for their own immediate gain. They'll go off and gobble it up. So that's a person that that's an entity with no deferred gratification. And there are people that act just like that. They will have no compunctions whatsoever about taking something in an opportunistic way for their immediate consumption. Um, the level one of deferred gratification would be the squirrel. The squirrel would see my acorn on the table and he would go and he would steal my property and he would go and stash it in his tree for his uh, consumption during the winter. So in some ways, it's fair to say that a squirrel is a more advanced creature than some human criminals. And I just I just <laughs> enjoy pointing at least that little bit out. And then, of course, the level two, the advanced 
deferred gratification would be if the squirrel saw my acorn and then checked with me before taking it because he's able to conceptualize property. And when I said, no, I don't consent, he would leave it there. That is the difference. Those are sort of the three states of deferred gratification. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. Uh, It's an interesting thing to tell people uh, whenever you're explaining ideas like this, that, you know, if someone was to take your acorn, for example, uh, or if somebody wants a more realistic example, perhaps it's like, look at the Amazon uh, package thieves, right? Who who have weighed the cost benefit and decided that their immediate gratification of whatever is in your Amazon box is worth the, the the penalties or the risk, right? And so they've just completely issued your property rights and taken them, and that makes them equivalent to the squirrel in in a very no, real worse. way. Worse than the squirrel. Worse than the squirrel because they're stealing yes. that for immediate gratification. Oh yeah, and the squirrel is doing it. <laughs> they're the they're going to turn that around. They're they're going to turn around and pawn that stuff to get cash. Yeah, exactly. The squirrel will at least save it for later. (laughs) They're a level lower than the squirrel. That was my point. Yeah. Yeah. And and in the conception of of moral philosophy, that means anything that you could have reasonably done to that squirrel to get your acorn back. This is a very controversial topic. So, you know, if you don't want to go too far down this way. You could do to the human, right? <laughs> do you know me? <laughs> I uh, I know. I just felt like it was important to uh, make sure that that fair was enough. stated. So fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree. I don't. I don't disagree with that. Yeah, it is. A, it is sort of a controversial thing to say, but it also brings these highfalutin moral philosophies and people's feelings because most people don't even crack a book; they just go with their feels and. Um, what you just said certainly conflicts with an average person's feelings on the subject. It's like, Oh, you would. So what, what would you do? To, what would you do to get your acorn back from a squirrel? If you really wanted it? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to get my acorn back. If I really want the acorn back, well, you could do the same things to a person that stole your, uh, you know, package off the porch. And, um, and that is, well, I don't even know if that's the correct next step for this conversation, because that's that's even yeah. into a moral philosophy. But look, if we're just in the state of nature and, and an acorn steals my or and a squirrel steals my acorn, I kill the squirrel because I'm bigger and I have the power to do so. I have the might makes right in a state of nature. And that's another thing that I haven't heard Hobbes or any of the others uh, really make the connection on that. I like pointing out when I have this discussion is that. Might makes right is equivalent to the state of nature. It's whoever whoever can should. And um, and if you can get away with something and if you have the power to do something, then that's all that you need to do whatever you can and it can get away with doing. Uh, and then there are actual moral philosophies that sort of take that and they restate it. They take that same thing, sort of this uh, this might makes right concept, the state of nature existence, and then they try and build it into an actual moral philosophy. And I'm really talking primarily about consequentialists, because if you think about consequentialist moral philosophy, it is to um, think of something that you want the future to be like and then justify whatever it takes in terms of your actions to make the future into that state. So, Christian, you have a $100 bill in your wallet. My preferred future state is to have the $100 bill in my wallet. And so if I have to knock you out and, and um, you know, 
or worse to get that hundred dollar bill into my wallet. I mean, the ends justify the means in that regard. The consequences are what's important. And uh, <laughs> what I'm describing, I mean, they, they never give that example, right? The example is always something much more cerebral and much more altruistic sounding. It's like, well, if we have to raise taxes by 2% so that we can provide an extra daycare, you know, well, then that's then, then the ends justify the means in that regard. Well, it's the exact what I, my point is that you're describing a state of nature. You have determined through whatever your own subjective valuation value process is that you want something to be and you have the guns and power of government to make that thing. So therefore, your means justify your own subjective personal preferences in their ends. That is the absence of a moral philosophy that is just at restating a convoluted version of the state of nature. What do you think about that? Because I haven't I've I've only ever talked about this from a me to the camera perspective. I've never had a, a conversation with somebody about it. Yeah. So I think. I can definitely see where you're coming from, uh, because like it let's look at I'm most familiar with utilitarianism as a consequentialist philosophy, because it's probably the most blatant and it's just sheer pain good or pain bad pleasure good sorry and if if you if you really boil it down in the if if the world exists with a state of nature which they might reject for all i know to try to avoid this but if the world does exist with a state of nature and your acceptance of pleasure good pain bad is arbitrary which it it is because all of these people are moral subjectivists so they acknowledge the fact that it is an arbitrary selection then the vehicle by which or the the force is a vehicle just to implement that preferred state of reality, which like you're talking about is just another example of might right, makes right. It just happens to be perhaps a group of people who all use their might to make their right, you know, instead of an individual or a but, porch package thief. Yeah. 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 And I, I think that's, that's fair. Um, something, you know, if I had, just a little bit more foresight, I would have brought an article that I read a few weeks ago that made the claim that the government is is, the, is a perfect affirmation of the state of nature because it arbitrary, arbitrarily selects its rules and uses force to make those rules happen. Uh, it, you know, If we were to reject the notion of the social contract, which I don't think is going to be controversial here. Um, <laughs> and so this is all kind of just building on the idea that if your goal is – some sort of actualization of a goal, whatever it may be. I mean, it could be the best goal on planet Earth to me and you, but if it's an arbitrary selection and uses force as a vehicle to achieve that goal, then yeah, it, it is just, it's an expansion of the state of nature. It's just fancy state of nature with extra, extra steps, I guess. If that. <laughs> yeah. Another way to say it, and I haven't really thought this all the way through, so I could be wrong or in, in some edge case, and you can, I would love it if you could point out if I'm wrong, but it's, I think it's fair to say that all moral philosophies are some method of restricting your um, benefits to yourself um, in, in pursuit of some longer term deferred gratification, uh, conceptual benefit or, or actual benefit. It's, it's, uh, if it's a moral system, it's going to tell you what you can't do that you would have, um, otherwise done 
in the absence of a moral system. I think that's that's boiling the whole topic down. And, th- and that is sort of the razor edge between the state of nature and a moral philosophy. It's like, well, I'm not going to do this thing that I might otherwise do because of fill in the blank moral philosophy, whatever it is. Uh, even a consequentialist, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about consequentialists. Ah, no, I'm not. I can think of <laughs> one ahead, example. I can think of one example of a, of a moral philosophy that doesn't do this. Cool. And, uh, what it is goes it? By, it goes one of two names. It's egoist utilitarianism or egoist hedonism. Either one. And it's an entire, like the entire morality exists within yourself and it is all entirely focused on the lens of you. And so some people would say, that this is not a morality because it doesn't necessarily involve interactions with other people, but it does. It just doesn't care what they think about it. Uh, So it is what brings you the most pleasure in those interactions, regardless of what happens to them. So it's entirely self-centered. I would say it's not a moral philosophy because it is a state of nature. What you just described is a state of nature. It's just doing what makes you happiest, no matter any consequence. So again, we've, a lot of philosophers have put a lot of words into making up something that is just a state of nature situation with like more fog. And I, I find that to be one of them. Sorry. I thought you were asking for an example of like a published philosophy or something that doesn't fit into that category of limiting personal actions or something like that. But uh, I, well, I mean, that, that agree, was a, though. that was a it fair a exception. Yeah. It, yeah it if a, you consider, you know, that, if you consider that type of egoism or even consequentialism to be a valid philosophy, then I guess those could be exceptions. I, again, for reasons I've stated, I don't, I don't see them as valid moral philosophies because they're just state of nature with more steps. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's just to make you feel better about being an ass, I guess. That's the only thing I can think about uh, to, to justify, but Hey, uh, maybe there's something to that. I don't know. I'm not exactly well read on, egoist hedonism so uh i i do I, I do agree with you though i think i think you make a fair point and this is something, something i haven't considered before is that usually i've just viewed consequentialist philosophies as just pointlessly arbitrary and that's really as far as you have to go is premise one and you just identify the fact that this is arbitrary and non-compelling and then you have no compulsion to follow any of it and that extra layer of this is just an expansion of the state of nature it just does even more to delegitimize it, um, which is interesting. Uh, it's something I hadn't put a lot of thought into. So that's cool. Something something I would like to hear you expand expound on if you have any thoughts on it. Um, I had a debate on abortion a while back, and the person I was debating against took me off guard by claiming that it was just a me thing. It was just a Patrick thing that I was worried about something being non-arbitrary. Like, why do I care uh, that, that a position is non-arbitrary? Um, so I, without getting into abortion yeah. and I'm not, and I'm not going to oh, bring no. up the point in question for that reason, but why is it important to have non-arbitrary premises? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. If you have any. Yeah, so this is this could be man, this could be a whole show in itself. Um, oh, we can we can make it a whole show then. That's fine. No, we don't no, do that I, I no, no. I'm I am I I love this question, so I think it deserves an answer. But and I think it relates to state of nature. That's why I brought it up. Like, 
Go ahead. Sorry. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So we've we've already alluded to this before, and eventually I'll either be doing a video or we'll be doing another stream ex- specifically talking about this. But morality. I've already done a video on this. Actually, I called it Hume's Law and Why It Matters. Um, morality is subjective, and it was good. Yeah, I like that one. M- morality is entirely subjective, right? So what we have to do is make the most compelling subjective morality. And how do we do that? We take as much as we can from the universe as it will give us and create the ba- the strongest foundation from which to build up from. So the idea of non-arbitrariness comes from a preference for rationality and logic in moral reasoning. Now, I say preference because, again, there is no magic hand or book or constitution or natural right that says you must be rational. You you have to choose to do this, but it it makes your arguments significantly more compelling and has been studied for thousands of years for a reason. It has utility and it can be extremely powerful. And non-arbitrariness is part of a, a, rigid, un, rigid, a rigid understanding of the fundamental rules of logic. Uh, if if you allow arbitrariness into any discussion of logic without any any defensible position of why that arbitrary thing you selected was selected, you open the door for any number of other arbitrary ideas. And once you let once you let one in, you have to you have to either accept all of them or take all of them with a, a genuine grain of salt before dismissing them. So this is a part of just being consistent with your usage of logic. So does that help to answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, not so much. Question, I, I wanted you, but... I wanted to, I wanted to hear somebody. Yeah. I wanted to hear somebody outside of my head, uh, explain it to see if you hit it from a different angle and you did. And I enjoyed that. Um, what I usually say is like, it's the reason why we don't get offended when somebody says Metallica is the best metal band ever. It's like, okay, that's just your opinion, man. You know, <laughs> that, that, that is, uh, you know, just an arbitrary, arbitrary, subjective, another word, another problem word, right? If it's subjective, it's it carries a lot less weight. If it's arbitrary, it carries a lot less weight. Or, you know, it'd be like um, the correct amount of ice cream to eat is one and a half scoops. It's like, well, okay, okay. You might, you might be, that might be true. That might be the objectively, that might be an objectively true statement for everyone. Why? Oh, well, because, you know, when I eat one, I want more. And when I eat two, eh, you know, I don't really, it's just too much. Like, 1.5 kind of sounds right. It's like, okay, well, you just, <laughs> you just picked an arbitrary number and now your argument loses all credibility and weight. Uh, that That's, that's the way I usually um, try and attack it. Yeah. I mean, if it's arbitrary, it means that it is not based on an observation of reality. Right. And and we can't mm. we can't do anything with things that aren't observations of reality other than like you said, acknowledge them like, oh, it's cool that you like one and a quarter scoops of ice cream. That's as far as I can go with something that isn't an observation of reality. Um, yeah. And just before anybody says anything about it, this is something I see uh, a little bit is like, oh, well, it's objective that I like one and a half scoops or one and a quarter scoops more than I any, any other type. And all that says is that if we had the right technology and gizmos, we can make an objective statement about your entirely arbitrary preference that you do indeed have this entire arb- arbitrary position that you've, you've concocted. So just wanted to get that out of the way before anybody bring, cause I hear it all the time. All of these Sam Harris fans, man, they, they love talking about how it's the exact same as an objective morality, but Okay, 
Sorry, I got off that so I am objectively feeling amused right now. Yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, let me get my brain scanner out. We can prove that. Um. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then what do you have? You've proved uh, an arbitrary emotion. Okay, good job. Yeah, we we stick our thumbs up and we said we've officially made no progress. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. all you can do. Uh, and, yep. and that's the difference between uh, – and this is one of the reasons why I think our, the definition that we've been using of the state of nature is so important because it is based on observations of reality. So kind of looping all of this back together – Whenever we arbitrarily say like, oh, yeah, you know, like humans are the most important thing for the state of nature. It's like, OK, well, now all we know is that is from this this limited context in an arbitrary way. But when we can look at an observation and and see the state of nature in its totality, we can then start to better understand it and learn how we can avoid it. If you want to look at it that way or how we can um, better understand it to the benefit of ourselves and to our interactions with other people. Where if you're looking at this from an arbitrary perspective of say the state of nature of a child born in an otherwise normal society like Rousseau, you're not going to get much out of it other than a lot of subjective information that's cool but completely useless. Can you uh, are you interested in maybe going through some of the popular moral philosophies and and talking about how this understanding of the state of nature affects them? Uh, yeah, I think sure. that would be fun, fun and useful. Is there anywhere you'd like to start? Um, I would like to hear your take on it in reference to Rawlsianism, because I think you've had <laughs> way more. Uh, you've had way more reading on it than I have, and the little reading I've done on it is just a dumpster fire. So I would like to learn something from you. So Rawlsianism is a subset of social contract theory, right? I mean, it, it's right. literally called the Rawls theory of distributive justice. I mean, yeah, I, yep. you know, it doesn't get much more blatant than that. And there's the state of nature has a precarious involvement with his philosophy in the sense that when I read the book, he acknowledged it a few times as if I, and it's hard to tell whether it was more so like just service to the enlightenment. So people could say, Oh, Hey, I know that enlightenment thingy too. Or if he was actually attempting to incorporate something meaningful into his work. But if you look at this and, and let me know if I'm rambling or if I'm giving too much information, but the original position is essentially an attempt to sidestep the state of nature entirely, right? So normally when we look at this, we say, okay, we're all already in the state of nature. What do we do to get out of it? Rawls says, well, what we need to do is just not have a state of nature, right? So this is, <laughs> his, yeah. he's like, we need to all go up into space. We need to be uh, genderless, amorphous, you know, have, have no conceptions of, of self other than in a consciousness, which if you could even do that. And then we all have to look down at this dot and, and know that the cosmic lottery is going to put us somewhere on it. And so we have to come up with a system of rules that we would all like all of us. That, that is the fundamental inspiration of Rawlsianism is the original position. And it has motivated a lot of people, which is why he's commonly known as the most influential moral philosopher of the 20th century. Uh, so, what this rejection of the state of nature gets you is it kind of puts you in a position like we were talking about earlier, where if you don't understand the state of nature and you like reject it henceforth, you're putting yourself in a disadvantageous position to reality, which is a dangerous one to put yourself in. Uh, 
just reject like it. It's essentially like uh, seeing a hurricane coming in and saying there is no storm because I don't like mm. storms and they make me uncomfortable. And I'm being right. a little uncharitable here, but uh, I don't think I have any Rawlsian people who are watching my stuff. So <laughs> if I do and you disagree with me, by all means, I would love to talk. I've read the book. One of us might not have, but uh, <laughs> it's a uh, that's probably the best way to look at it is it is it is it an entire rejection of the state of nature, but an acknowledgement that one exists. I want to make sure that's clear. He acknowledges one exists, but it's kind of like if we shove it to the corner and we never talk about it and we never think about it, we don't have to deal with it because it's gone. Right. We all decided we wouldn't be state of nature people. And the ones that we do, we can just throw into cages and everything's fine. So. All right. Uh, I can I can take one. What what do you want me to do? Which moral philosophy do you want me to? Um, how about uh, like, well. I was going to say contractarianism, if you'd be interested in that, or we could do something more. Uh... It's up to you. Because I'd be interested in this perspective, because I'm not as learned on, on modern contractarianism as, as you might be. But I think contractarianism is, like, good. if I had to pick one that I align most with, and that's not to say perfectly with, it's just to say the most with, it would be contractarianism. Because it's kind of what I've been talking about this whole time. It's like, if you want to elevate your relationships and your life out of the state of nature, you need to modify your interactions with the other people around you that have the capacities to do so by making reciprocal agreements. I will not punch you if you don't punch me. I will not steal your property if you don't steal my property. I won't trespass if you don't trespass. And if you punch me... I mean, I no longer have any impetus to not punch you back. And uh, if if you step out of our agreement, then then you've reduced yourself back down to a state of nature. The agreements are the contracts that are sort of discussed in depth in contractarianism. And I think contractarianism takes it too far in some in, in some ways, like assuming implicit contracts and things like that. But maybe that's a topic for another video. <laughs> um, but I think I think maybe out of a lot of moral philosophies, I think it does. I think it comes a lot closer to recognizing accurately what we're trying to get out, out of and elevate ourselves from uh, through our agreements. So um, this could just be my ignorance, but I was under the impression that like modern contractarianism uses like a Lockean state of nature to derive natural rights from to justify the existence of the contracts. Now. If if you again, I'm entirely ignorant on this. So if you have a, a better understanding of that and would love to correct me, I would love to be proven wrong here or n just told. Well, wrong, I believe you. <laughs> we're we're both right and wrong. There's there's multiple there's multiple versions. There's multiple things that fit the moniker contractarianism. You are describing one that like then the book that we just did the audio book for described one like you're talking about where it tried to achieve libertarian sort of political ends using. Um, more of a natural law based thesis of rights uh, arising out of it. So um, when I was talking about it just now, it was a more um, it was a more reciprocal agreement mm -hmm. version of contractarianism. Yeah. And I can give you links. I can give you links to that um, maybe after the show or whatever. But yeah, you're right. You're right. And and you know what? The one you're talking about is probably the the one that I should have been responding to. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I just felt like I think, was I think natural law. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, 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 please. I asked you the questions. I, I would love to hear what you thought about it. 
The I, I think I think the more interesting one is the natural law uh, moral philosophy. Just as in general, I think it's mm-hmm. the one that that maybe second only to Rawlsianism, based on what you just said about <laughs> it. I think is more uh, is more of a transgressor of this um, this purposely sort of ignoring reality. It's just it it declares by fiat that rights exist uh, or that rights are derived from behaviors. Um, which are obviously non-uniform across all the like, like if every single human did something a specific way, always dependably, perfectly, even then I think you'd have difficulty, you know, maybe deriving an objective rule from it because I mean, humans can choose to act opposite to even breathing. So like you could hold your breath until you passed out or whatever. It's a naturalistic um, fallacy either way. I mean, just because something has been one way forever does not mean that it can't tomorrow be another thing. You know, it doesn't make it bad for it to be so. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Please go ahead. No, I was, um, I think the, the biggest natural law proponent in the uh, volunteers community right now would probably be Mark Passio. And he, um, I was debating with one of his adherents recently in my DMs and let me just read some of it because it's a really good setup for this specific discussion. Um, He says he has absolute hard definitive proof that objective morality exists in nature, which is a bold fucking claim. (laughs) Solving philosophy right here, you know? And, you know, look, look, like, I wish that were true. I have gone looking for it in the past with the highest of hopes because, wow, that would make moral philosophy so much easier. Um, (laughs) Yeah. God, imagine a non-subjective, non-arbitrary, like, laws of how you should live your life. Like, oh, my Lord. It just, it's so easy at that point. But, yeah. Yeah, just pull out a microscope and zoom in close enough on a molecule and see the rules. Oh, my God. (laughs) Case closed. Let's move on, you know? Like, wow. (laughs) <laughs> um so the the an example of what I was talking about is that uh all living creatures will attempt to avoid or run from harm. They when they experience pain, they try and avoid it. And from that, they think they can objectively say that harming things is wrong. And of course, knowing that you've made the Hume's guillotine video recently that I thought was very good by the way, you know the problem with this conception. And this is, I think, the core fundamental problem with the natural rights moral philosophy is that you take these common behaviors and then you apply an ought to them. But there is no connection from what is, which is true, most living creatures, down to the insect, even grass, as this guy says. Uh, grass, uh, like when you cut grass, it emits some kind of... Uh, chemical in the air that warns other grass that it might there's, there's there's a threat coming or something like that so like whatever it is the case that you know living creatures try and avoid harm to whatever extent that they can but you can't you can't get an ought from that you can't then say well therefore harm uh, must not be done to grass or to people from that and that is the the fundamental break in the problem with um with natural rights moral philosophy and relating that back to the state of nature is that uh, we exist in a state of nature where living creatures harm other living creatures all the time. And 
you being a higher functioning, higher reasoning, one of those creatures are the only one <laughs> that has tried to rub two concepts together hard enough to decide that you can get an ought from that is. Uh, and so that should tell you something. <laughs> anyway, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, just for anybody who isn't aware, like in the podcast or anybody watching, that the, the there's nothing inherently wrong, right, in, in like a moral sense with having an ought turn into another ought or even incorporating some ises to make that ought more compelling. All that it means is that it's not objective. There is there's nothing about this that is a fact of the universe that you ought to do that thing. Uh, what what the the is to the ought is attempting to explain is that that would be what is necessary for there to be a an objective moral, which if you dissect that enough means that it has to be inherently self-evident, which if you start thinking about what a self-evident moral would look like, your brain will start to fizzle a little bit. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to use things like a goodness particle to represent that, but that would mean you would have to look at it and it would be objectively, inherently, self-evidently good. What does that look like? We have no idea, which I, I'm going a little off track here, but, uh, this is, I think something that is very important to keep in mind whenever you are looking at any of these things that attempt to make some kind of blanket, um, Look at this example. Now we have all of the rules that we need for morality henceforth, or that, you know, natural rights or any sort of objective morality exists at all, which is directly tied to what we were talking about with the state of nature. Because the fact that we can demonstrate the state of nature without any sort of this is how you ought to live your life prescriptions attached to that shows that. What we're doing is not making a, a state of nature moral philosophy, like a claim like a uh, anarcho-primitivist might or something like that, that we ought to live in a state of nature, which is something that would be taking the state of nature exists and moving it to an ought. It's just all it is is a recognition of that state of nature. That's all we're doing here. So. Yeah, I was I'm looking up uh, a dichotomy that I wrote down that speaks to this difference between um with there being no uh good written in, in like evaluation moral evaluation of what is the good uh doesn't exist in reality and it it had to do with Christian apologetics. It was uh, if, you, um, if you need me to buy you some time, I can definitely do that. Uh Yeah, go ahead. I'll find this, it. I'll find it. Uh, values yeah, go ahead. It's one of those topics that I spend a lot of time in and is, you know, all this stuff that we're talking about today, it may sound at some points like it kind of is around the idea of a state of nature. But again, you have to recognize that there is a state of nature for really any of this to be worth anything to begin with. So like when we do things like value studies, we have to realize that value in the state of nature is just as subjective as it is everywhere else. Um, and you could look at this from a lot of perspectives. I'm not necessarily looking at it from a uh, like a aesthetics perspective of like what is beauty you know which is a value claim in itself but from an ethical perspective of what is what is good what is bad and the idea of self-evidency is something that if you accept reality as being real which i just realized is something that we should have done at the beginning of this is acknowledge that all of this is on the premise that reality is real uh and, and moving from there, you know, ha having an ability to look at these values in, in any sort of self-evident sense, like I can say, I'm looking at a screen that has me and Patrick on it. That's that's a self-evident. It, it, it relays that information to me to say 
this screen is good would mean that it in some way conveys goodness to me self-evidently. And that's something that uh, is just difficult to think about. I mean, let alone say it's possible. You know, it's like counting to infinity. What does that even mean? You know, <laughs> as as hard as I try to exude literal goodness, I just haven't been able to do it yet. <laughs> I'm trying to send it to you, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is called the Euthyphro problem. And uh, this comes from Plato's uh, first book about Socrates um, called Euthyphro, where Socrates talks to Euthyphro. Uh, the question is about God and good and, and um, what is good. Uh, is that which is good, good because God wills it to be good, and you can transpose yourself in, in for God, and it's kind of the same thing. Or does God will it because it is good? If the former, then God dic dictates morality, and it falls to the problem of subjectivity and arbitrariness. It's just whatever he decides is good is good, so it kind of loses its moral weight uh, because of the, again, arbitrary and subjectiveness of it. Uh, or... God uh, is 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 acting in a certain way because of some external uh, determining factor about reality that de that says what is good. So God is doing an action that is good because something is telling him that it is good, in which case, you know, there's problems for God in that there's something that controls God and what he can do, which you know means he's not omnipotent. But th that's an entirely <laughs> different debate. The point is. Um, it, it's, it makes you look at this property called goodness, um, external, it, it makes you attempt to look at it external to, um, a rational mind and realize that, oh, well, it obviously doesn't actually exist. There's, there's no, you can't, like I said, pull a microscope out and zoom in close enough on a molecule and read the rules. Like it doesn't work like that. Like you, you all you can do is look at the mechanics of the universe uh, you can from the from the mechanics, from the is's, you can make valid claims about what you need to do if you assume certain goals, but you can't um, you can't divine what the goal should be. From from the actual state of the universe, from the state of nature, so to speak. And all of these philosophers we've been talking about that have been attempting to construct moral philosophies on these state of natures, even though we disagree with the state of natures they're trying to build, are trying to present them as ises that they can create oughts out of. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I've said it this way many times before, but these people are attempting to solve philosophy in a very literal sense. Like, I have found it. Mm. Philosophy is done. The is has been reached from the ought. Um, and that is in my opinion, probably the most futile thing you could possibly do with all of your time, because I don't think it's physically possible, though I'd love to be proven wrong at some point if someone wants. To I mean, you just basically it. called all of philosophy for thousands of years a pointless endeavor. Not all of it, because Socrates, <laughs> my man, he was always there. to. Oh, I, okay. I, have, I have a very yeah. hot take that Socrates was Hume before Hume is Hume. Uh, all he did okay. was, was go around and ask, who are you so wise in the ways of X until they finally capitulated and admitted that what they thought was either wrong or entirely arbitrary. And what does Hume's law do? It's just breaks down an argument until someone says, because I want it that way, or because I think it should be that way. It's exactly what Socrates did. Um, so Hume's law. Or because it would be long. bad if it wasn't that way. That's usually <laughs> what it get, gets down to. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be hell if it wasn't that way. Imagine if it was that way. It would be terrible.
Therefore, moral rules, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, who's and, the worst? Oh, sorry, sorry go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, no, no, no. I'm curious. What were you going to ask? I was just going to keep going on about how, yes, I do think most well, of philosophy I, has been a giant waste of time, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to waste the time. Like it's, it, it's, it depends on what your goal is, uh, but uh <laughs> if, if their goal was but, um, to try to solve philosophy, like from the broader narrative of like bringing us as humans closer to an understanding of like whatever truth there is to gain from this universe, I think they everybody's done a really good job. They've written a lot of really well thought out stuff. I say everybody. 90% of the ones that you would know the name of have done a really good job writing out their thoughts and, and really believing what they're thinking. But if, you know, if they woke up and they were like, I'm going to solve philosophy today and it's going to be me that does it without the framework of this is all building on the larger human narrative of trying to find truth. I think I think it's just a misguided approach. How about I put it that way? I think you're more productive in in trying to make yourself a piece of that narrative than you are to solve moral philosophy, because but perhaps there's a lot of parallels there's a lot of parallels between this discussion and uh, apologetics for God. That's I, I think I told you this a while back. I study the apologi- uh, apologetics and anti-apologetics for faith because there's been more written in that area than on any other moral philosophy. There's more people over thousands of years trying to philosophically prove the existence of God and more people... Um, disproving those arguments over over the thousands of years so it's like a great case study in somebody trying to overlay something non-real on reality and another group of people showing why oh nope this is reality uh that doesn't match a equals a we have to reject that or you know uh, or hume's guillotine is a murderous bitch like sorry that doesn't work um like I, I love to hate Hume's guillotine, and I think that that's the that is the healthy relationship to have with it. I was going to ask you earlier what you thought of, uh, or what you thought the worst or most transgressive of the state of nature. Which which of the moral philosophies just gets it the worst wrong, or gets it wrong in the most damaging way? Might be another way to ask the question. I think Rousseau's work is, is, you mm. know, and maybe this is the easy way out. Um, I think Lockeanism has led a lot of people astray from its conception of the state of nature. And I have my own beefs with that. Uh, not that Locke hasn't well, done take some time. stuff. It, but, yeah, it, it, yeah. Expound, expound on it. Tell us why. Well, we can go through that's Rousseau good, that's pretty good. quick. Yeah. Okay. I, I've, I've been, this, this won't take nearly as long. I've been, very critical of Rousseau through this whole thing. I haven't taken him very seriously. I don't think anybody really does in 2021 as far as like, what is a good definition of the state of nature? If your philosophy cares about that at all, uh, it's very obviously based in just a fallacious observation. Like, I don't even think it's a good observation. Like to, to assume that children are an apt observation of the state of nature is missing so many other influencing factors on that, that, I don't think it's it's right to assume that if if all of civilization and all of our cultural ties as we know it disappeared tomorrow, we'd all just be writing plays and debating philosophy the next day. Um, I, I don't think I don't think it's a reasonable thing. And any philosophy which base which his entire work essentially comes down to some point to going through this understanding of the state of nature, we you're so horribly misunderstanding the connection 
between the actual state of nature and this proposed idea of the state of nature that you really just can't get anything productive built, in my opinion. Um, Locke's state of nature is the number one vehicle for the conception of natural rights in his in his uh, breakdown of the state of nature. It, it's the direct vehicle by which natural rights are made from. If you could do it in the state of nature, it's a natural right, right? Like, so if I could kill someone for taking my property in the state of nature, it means I'm, I'm, I should always be able to do that, right? Like it's something that, that is, is intuitive of the state of nature. It is a fact of reality that I should be able to protect my property, et cetera, et cetera. And that owning property is a state, is a state of nature act as well. And this is something you kind of alluded to earlier when talking about actions in the state of nature being used as justifications for the moral philosophy. And you you can't do that, you know, for a lot of reasons that we've just talked about before. And uh, I feel like this is definitely probably a topic for another day, but we could definitely go into it a little bit. Natural rights is like the biggest hurdle I have been running up against recently as far as people like rejecting uh, a lot of notions of like reciprocity being necessary and the ideas of of, of essentially all of the tenets of voluntarism as opposed to maybe some of its more uh, natural rights accepting. Uh, though I don't think there's as much of a clash as people believe there is, but I think the, that it doesn't incorporate them is an issue to them, essentially. And, and that, to me, is a bit frustrating. Uh, so it's not like I don't wish Locke wrote it, because in, in those same works, he gave really great stuff on property and why property rights are important and how property can be acquired and transferred, et cetera, and stuff that we use to this day. But um, I, I'm not a huge fan of his conception of the state of nature. So uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but. Yeah, I agreed uh, with everything you just said, I think, actually. Um I, I don't know when you say that you've been running, you, you encounter it frequently when uh, I guess natural law adherents uh, having a problem um, or, or what do you mean by that? Is it, is it the voluntarist community or are you talking about in like the no. more collegiate philosophy? Well, not so much a voluntarist community because I think a lot of uh, not to be too collectivist, but the majority of the people that I run into are either um, just Christian people who don't care or they're, atheists mm -hmm. who don't believe in natural rights, uh, which I, I think is the majority. There are definitely outliers and mixed matches of those people. But uh, if you go into like more traditional libertarian circles and in the collegiate realm, natural rights are very often invoked in like an academic setting uh, because you're either in objective moral philosophy person who believes in natural rights or your subjective moral philosophy person who doesn't believe in natural rights and therefore you can justify anything. And we don't, mm -hmm. well, I said we voluntarism as I understand it does not fit into either of those categories. So you get friction with both sides and mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a frustrating position to be in because if there was just, if, if, you know, and again, maybe I'm wrong and I hope to be proven wrong someday. If this conception of natural law and natural rights didn't compel these people into a state of moral absolutism, then perhaps there would be a significantly easier barrier to cross when it comes to ideas like reciprocity and, and why this is important in our conception of the state of nature. So it seems like uh, it's a frustrating hurdle because I think it's one that is based in something that is difficult to rationalize away, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I was composing a tweet right before we went live uh, where I was saying that um, a lot of libertarian types and voluntarist types have sacred cows that um, really surprise me. And uh, natural law, natural rights are certainly one of those sacred cows where when you question their existence, they have a, an immediate emotional reaction too. And this goes back to, and, and look, I, I, I get the feels, man. I used to be uh, a natural rights uh, believer, so to speak. Um, I back when I was uh, yeah. going, yeah. Constitutionalist when I was a Republican type, when I was a conservative type, uh, you know, when I followed the founding fathers, respect and loved, you know, them and what they did. And, you know, they were natural law types. It's written into the constitution. Uh, it's written into a lot of the founding documents, actually. Uh, and so I just assumed that that was all valid. And I think on the right, just the entire political spectrum on the right side, at least, is very interested and um, not interested. They're very they're believers. They're sold. They are they yeah. are in the church of the natural law. Um, unfortunately, I have yet uh, like I, I no longer see a justification. I no longer see the evidence required to believe that such a thing exists in reality. But and then I try and tell people it's like, OK, but. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a a discuss that's a pill that is um that tastes like shit to swallow that pill. Yes, agreed. I, I remember I've been there. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. Um, but it's not the end of the world. Like the world doesn't end when you realize that <laughs> morality isn't written into the atomic structure. You know, um, we. <laughs> your baker doesn't and start realize putting they, nails in your bread and people aren't running down the streets murdering people because that's what like, I was about to say. Oh yeah. Right. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Realizing that it doesn't exist in the inside of the fabric of reality. You have to also at the same time, not forget that even though it has never existed, we're still not in the Hobbesian nightmare, right? <laughs> like we're still, um, mo people mostly want to be good and kind to each other and help each other. And, and uh, so what that means, what you're left with is exactly what humans have done without thinking that they've uh, about doing it on purpose. They've elevated themselves out of the state of nature using their reason and gratification deferral and advanced conceptualization. And and um, that's why I got to what are rights and who gets them. And and uh, I had never read Hobbes when when I first started working on this problem. I had not read his state of nature. I knew I knew nothing about it. I set out to just simply define what are rights. And as step one, I had to realize the actual nature of reality. The actual thing that I exist in does not contain any rights. There's no rules, unfortunately. Unfortunately, again, bitter pills to swallow. I got it. I'm with you. I feel it. I feel you. I promise I do if, if you're one of those people. I don't like it. I'm not happy with this. But I don't see any evidence. If you've got evidence... Please show it to me. I would love that to be true. And I mean, and I don't mean that disingenuously. I'm being very serious. This is a hard, I have been forced into this position by what I love. What I say is the force of reason. The force of reason has compelled me into this position. Uh, so I, I don't want to like, I'm not downplaying anybody's emotions when I'm, when I'm, I'm not talking shit about natural law is what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say that I don't see any evidence that it actually exists. And so what that leaves us with doing is realizing that all of the rights that we currently reciprocate between each other, that comes from us, which is also kind of empowering. That means that you and I can work together to create rights and we can make them as strong as we can possibly make them between ourselves. And, you know, it, it also 
going back to the very beginning of the show when we were talking about how it how um, it can leave you more defenseless if you if you think the state of nature is safer than it is, for example. Or if you think humans are just above all that violence nonsense, like understanding that there is no rights outside of your body that's going to like jump in the front of a bullet to save you like that. That's not how it works. The Constitution, a bullet will go right through that piece of paper. Uh, no matter how many times it says natural law on it, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so what does that do? Well, it means that you are solely responsible for your life and protecting that life and for protecting your property. And the best way to do that is to reciprocate agreements with the people around you. Find good people, befriend good people, get rid of bad people from your life. Don't don't let them near you. Don't let them affect your life. Don't associate with them. Associate with the good people, the ones that you can trust, the one that want to reciprocate <laughs> rights with you and, and be respectful. Uh, that is so much more closely lined up with reality that it will certainly give you better outcomes than if you think that constitution documents and natural law and nat natural law, I think is a worse term than natural rights. Like natural rights makes a little bit more sense. Natural law. That sounds like there's a constitution <laughs> encoded on an atom now. Like it's just like, <laughs> that, that's even worse in my opinion. That, that re, it sounds more real. It sounds more tangible to say natural law, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't. Unfortunately, that sucks. Anyway, rant over. I apologize. Well, and, and somebody listening to this who has now listened through the whole conversation and, you know, takes all of this in might ask something to the effect of like, okay, well, the state of nature is real. We can't get an op from an is. Uh, there are no natural rights because of, of this and, you know, like you just went through. Um, well, what's 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 compelling me to do anything moral at all uh, if it's all subjective, right? If the, if the state of nature is the only truth, per se, if you want to look at it that way about behavior, then why elevate myself? And it is entirely true that the selection to elevate yourself is is an arbitrary one. It is one that you make because you want to make it. It is not, there's nothing about the universe that says you have to elevate yourself. And in fact, there may be things you could gain if you don't elevate yourself. But I think there are, generally speaking, compelling arguments that you could make for why we don't all, you know, upon the recognition that there are no natural rights, start running down the street and murdering our neighbor or something. So we have an understanding that there are benefits to living outside of the state of nature for all of us, not just from the individual's perspective. Who do you think? It's yeah. Fair? And a tease. Yeah. And, and as a teaser for a future conversation, cause it's way too big to add to this one, right. Would be, well, okay. Now that we've decided that we need to elevate ourselves out of a state of nature, what's the best way to do that? What's the thing that we plug in? What is the ought that we use to best and uh, to best elevate ourselves out of the state of nature to reduce the conflict over scarce resources to the greatest extent possible. That's, that's the question that moral philosophy I think should be focused on solving, but they're all preoccupied with, as you described earlier, solving philosophy, like divining an ought from an is, whereas uh, where I'm now focused with my time and attention is, is sort of past that. Like, okay, look, you can't get an ought from an is a lot of people like I want to locate the people that have the same ought as I do that they want to be 
good people. They want to respect my rights. They want to be friends with and associate with other people that want to do the same. And so what does that look like specifically? What are the what's the rubric of rules? What's the equation for um, applying moral judgments to behavior that will work and function best with the people that want to be good, that want to elevate themselves? That's where I want to exist inside of moral philosophy. And I, I think most moral philosophers would say, oh, well, you're not you're barely even doing philosophy working on that. I mean, I think to your point earlier, most of y'all are just wasting your time because you're trying to do something you can't do. I'm over here trying to do something that actually you can do. So that would be my retort to those people, I guess. Yeah. And if you want to look at this from another perspective, this is actually a conversation I actually had with someone who's actually a philosopher. (laughs) Like that's their job. And um, they basically address it from from a similar angle as the dissident in your your example where it's like look like you know you're not even like it's it's not even really like philosophy you know and uh again like that's the point almost is that we can't there's a certain in in, and it's not outright i I don't want to make it sound like like all of this was built on some kind of like rejection of all possible other scenarios but the 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 methodology that leads to this leads no other option than to assume that where we're at there, there, there isn't a mechanism for universal agreement because there's arbitrariness built into the equation. There will always be people who disagree, want to be state of nature beings, want to disagree on any of the premises of any, any moral system that's built from this. And there's nothing besides doing whatever you would do into your moral system anyways that you could do to stop that you just have to be as compelling as possible and that's almost more of a rhetoric thing at that point than it is a an issue of the the moral system itself because what we're doing again is we're expanding the state of nature outwards into well, now we've introduced someone trying to bring a moral philosophy into the state of nature and some of the monkeys will say ooh you know, I want to be around people who like the same kind of bananas as me and will help protect my bananas. And they elevate themselves. And then some other people say, well, I don't want to be a part of that. And they don't. And there's nothing anybody can do to convince them otherwise. They have to be they have to find the compulsion within themselves to do that. And that that is something that, again, uh, a lot of people who tried to solve philosophy think like if you just use the right combination of magic words like because it's all self-evident or true, we'll get some sort of like inherent compulsion through rationality or through an appeal to emotion or something like that. It's a bitter pill. I understand what you just, what you just said would to, to me 10 years ago would have been a really bitter thing to come to understand. It's a downer, but there, there, there is safety, protection, peace, happiness involved in bringing your understanding uh, of reality closer to reality. You, you get a lot of benefits from being as real as possible and understanding and working with the closer you are, the closer your hands are to the actual levers that affect reality, the safer you're going to be, the more successful and happy you're going to be. And this is one where a, a lot of people get wrong. That's why I was happy to come on your show to talk about this subject specifically, because I think it's core fundamental problem of most moral philosophies that they don't uh, recognize reality. And, um, 
I mean, I, I'm also not really too concerned with debating what is and isn't philosophy with people that would want to debate me on that. I mean, call it whatever <laughs> you want. Call yeah. call it prescriptive behavioral science if you want. I don't care what words you come up with it. I want to apply the scientific method, reason and logic to to constructing um, an equation that we can use to apply non-subjective moral judgments to human interaction. So whatever you want to call that, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think uh, getting lost in the weeds in that is, is a, a bit of a, it's a bit of a waste of time, honestly, um, because the disagreements that people have with the way that, and I'll just call it a moral philosophy. I don't have any issue with that. Uh, maybe I'm biased, but um, the, the, any any of the issues that people would have with the moral philosophy can be addressed from the basis of a moral philosophy. Whether if you want to address the framework and the grounding of it, sure. But like it gives prescriptions of of how one ought to live their lives that can be debated as any other moral philosophy. And so it, it, again, it's like, is it a house if you somehow manage to build it from the roof to the foundation? You know, I mean, if it's still got walls and a door and everything, you know. If, Sounds like a really complicated task, but if that's how you did it and it still works as a house, I guess it's a house, right? Um. Well, to ch to push back and challenge them the in the other direction, is it really a house if it doesn't have a foundation and whatever you're imagining is just magically floating above the ground? Because that's what most moral philosophies are. Yeah. They're just <laughs> magically floating above the ground and you're calling it science. no. You're you're engaged in spooks or something like you're you're off in another realm, um, mentally masturbating with things that aren't connected to reality. So that would be my counter challenge. It's like if you want to if you want to elevate philosophy to that of a science, which means to make it valid, well, then you have to ground it in reality. And that's what we're doing here with this topic in this video. So. Yeah, I, one thing that's always like the more the more philosophies I study, the more I notice that there's a strong correlation between an acceptance of an objective reality and an, an acceptance of an objective morality. They seem to go hand in hand. Now, this is obviously not always true. Like Hume believed reality was real, for example, but was not an objective moralist. But a lot of these people take epistemological positions like the epistemological unknowable, like we can never truly know. So everything's subjective and whatever. Uh, that this is not an entirely unique, but it is a un it is a unique enough perspective that it it entertains me whenever I find someone who's in a similar position because it's not often that you get people that will accept that reality is real and then also say that there is no objective morality. They it's it almost to the extent that I could see someone who's not who's unaware that this even really happens that it could be like shockingly. Uh, ex exceptional. So, uh, but I think we've, we've done a pretty You're... adequate defense of that. So, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, it's it's been good. I've enjoyed it. Is there anything else that you'd like to cover? Um, I think we hit pretty much all of the bases. I wasn't quite trying to wrap up the show. If you've got more you want to talk about by any means, but um, the it was just something that popped in my head when we were talking about this. Uh, the 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 big thing that I want to make sure it gets across to to anybody listening in the podcast or anybody who's watching is that the state of nature exists in a way that is objective because reality is real. Again, like we just talked about, it's something that we can, we can observe, we can repeatedly observe, we can 
peer review, all of us will see the same thing, despite our potentially highly fallible senses, which is just more testament to how objective it is. Uh, if you can peer review something and all come up with the same answer, right? And th these these attributes of the state of nature are what led, uh, and it seems like we're in agreement, so I'll use the collectivist us. It led us to this understanding of the state of nature that contrasts from the Hobbesian, Lockean, and Rousseau state of nature in what ultimately wind up being significant ways, if progressively less significant as you go in reverse order from that list. Yep. Yep. I'm part of that us, and that's not something I usually say. Yeah. There, there we go. Great. Great. <laughs> I'm part of that we. I'm part of that. I'm part of that collective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I guess, I mean, the only other thoughts I had were just sort of on solipsism, but, uh, that's kind of tangential to this discussion probably. So I don't know if you want to go there, but uh, it, it's, I, it's I like the, it's, it's the, it's the demon behind all philosophy. And it's, uh, it's such a, it's such a drain on productive brain cells that, um, uh, I, I, I keep trying to put it to bed, even though it really can't be, uh, it's, it's, it's this, the best and I guess I'll say this and then we can stick on it if you want or move on. But um, the, the the best counter to solipsism, like hard solipsism being real or being not real. That's the wrong word. <laughs> that's specifically <laughs> the wrong word. <laughs> Philosophy joke. Um, <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> um, is that. Earlier in this conversation, for example, you said that you had never thought about uh, something in a certain way before. I think it was uh, consequentialism as, yeah. a, as an actual non-moral philosophy state of nature thing. For solipsism to be true for. Uh, again, I, I did it again uh, <laughs> for for you to not actually uh, for me to not exist for you, that would mean that you had to already know that and just sort of you were thinking to yourself and just sort of you like every song ever written you wrote every movie ever written you wrote every thought ever that ever uh, introduced to you well that was actually you you know there there's this there's this sort of uh kind of dumb uh, dumb is not a counter argument of course otherwise i'm not solving <laughs> hard solipsism right it's just um i find it i find it e either i'm sort of omniscient uh, or reality exists. That's kind of my thought on it. Um, solipsism is one area that uh, I, I could put more time into, but as I have more immediately pressing things and, and have I, so let me put it to you this way. I have accepted the fact that the epistemological unknowable is a valid criticism. It is a valid criticism. I don't, I just don't care. Right. And that's well, therefore, intuitionism. Well, no, that's not. A, no, 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 no. The epistemological <laughs> unknowable is a valid criticism. I got like I got like six no's in a row there. That was pretty no, good. No, 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 no. If it's a, it's a valid criticism that could is just as likely to be wrong as it is to be right. That's it. it all it is, is the question of, well, it could be this way. You never know, right? And that's not a conclusion by which to build a moral philosophy or to live your life by, right? There are lots of coulds. There are lots of coulds. An airplane could hit my house right now. 
I should probably dive, right? Or go leave. I guess I'll leave. You know, I mean, if that's how we're going to do this, right? Uh, what we need in order to make some kind of groundwork is like an affirmation that like the state of nature, it can't exist in a world where everything could be fake. Everything we just talked about is completely useless. doesn't matter. It could all be fake. Everything we know could be fake, right? And if you want to, if you are interested in living a moral life, solipsism, you've, you've already, in a sense, already rejected it. Because why do you care about living a moral life if none of it's real to begin with? If, if everything is just a construction of your mind and you're the only thing that exists, why not just go on a rampant murder spree? It's, you know, p- people all the time say like, oh, why are we having this conversation? Like, it's completely pointless. You know, <laughs> you've already had it with yourself. That's the only reason this is happening, you know? And there's there's a certain amount of truth to that that I think more than warrants a an acceptance of reality. Because for me, the question that something could exist or could not exist is not as sufficient as my ability to see it, to observe, to take in these senses that have not failed me yet. Uh, so what I need is I need some kind of objective, concrete... You wouldn't know thing. if your senses failed you. you. You wouldn't necessarily know if your senses failed you. I'm not going to... No. I am not going to start arguing solipsism because that is that is like a brain sucking waste of time. I would like to forward the conversation, if you don't mind, away from solipsism, anything but solipsism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, To to just asking you why you want to live a moral life. Um, Well, to me, it's it's important in kind of a strange way at first. Uh, Whenever I first started getting into philosophy, and I've talked about this a little bit before in the actually quite a bit quite a few times on the show but it was always just kind of like let's see what other people think of the world um i took a uh almost like a descartes approach i th- believe it's the correct person in the sense that i like pushed away as many of my old values as i possibly could and just like took everything in and kind of like let it wash over me in a sense and p- picked what i found and moved forward with it which is how i slowly transitioned from you know a, a a constitutionalist to like a nothing to a libertarian minarchist to, you know, I made my whole progress. And for me, being moral is important because there, there's two reasons why. And one of them is a like utility based perspective. And one of them is an entirely subjective perspective. One of them is, is that there are severe consequences for not being a moral person. Uh, Especially if the, way that I view the world is is a, a valid enough way that other people would like to live their life by it. That therefore me, that gives me a motivation in itself to not violate other people's rights, right? Uh and then there's also this extra level to it where there are so many benefits outside of like in the sense of the the deferred gratification like we were talking about. In in a world where that we're kind of constructing here in like this in, in an idealized picture of the world as I as I would see it under this kind of system, there is extreme merit to this deferred gratification. And it could be years, months, decades, but say, for example, not imposing a government or or uh what's the word I'm looking for here? For bolstering a government to like enforce my my will onto other people, I don't have to one day worry about the same thing happening to me. And there's there's like a beauty in that, in a sense, that makes me compelled from, again, my own subjective perspective to seek that in all possible opportunities. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, and your your two part answer was um, very close to what I would have said. Um, the first part is uh, there's a lot of utility in um, operating your life and your relationships and and your your orbits of friends and associates according to rules that are universalizable, non arbitrary, consistent. It makes for a more cohesive less disrupted um, life in general. Uh, it gives you a support network of other people. Uh, it gives you happiness uh, just uh, just in if for no other reason than safety allows you more space to be happy. So there's yeah, there's a lot of utility in um, in finding a moral rubric, a moral equation that uh, reduces conflict. And elevates you out of that state of nature. And then the second one is the is the subjective emotional one. The first one is is a more objective thing. Like you can show the benefits on on paper on a spreadsheet, yeah. so to speak. Uh, the second one is just, um, and this could be an evolutionary thing. It could, you know, totally like could be a deterministic whatever. I may not. This is not something. I don't know why. I guess is what I'm saying, and it doesn't really matter. But it makes me happy. Um, acting virtue, something about me, and I try not to project this on other people, but I think it, I think it applies to a lot of humans. There's something about um, behaving virtuously in the face of resistance to that virtue that really does create happiness and self fulfillment. It makes me happy to behave virtuously when I don't have to, when I could get away with it. Uh, it makes me ha- it makes me even more happy to behave virtually uh, uh, virtuously in the face of danger. So, like if it's danger, if it's more dangerous or risky to to behave in a good way, um, the, it's, sort, it's sort of like our capacity for happiness is is um, proportionate to the. Or I should say it like this: the quantity of happiness that uh, we can get from an action, a virtuous action is proportionate to the risk or the danger or unpopularity or resistance to that virtuous act. Uh, the, the example I always use is um, back when slavery was a thing, it would have been uh, a pretty extreme risky thing to, you know, walk through town yelling that slavery was immoral and, and it was um uh, you know, a vile, evil aggression and uh, that anyone that owned slaves was, um, you know, equivalent to the devil or something like that. Like that would have been uh, that would that 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 is a virtuous act. And if I did that today, it would still be a virtuous act. However, if I did that today, everyone would think I was a nut job because, of course, slavery is immoral <laughs> and there's not really much happiness to be gained from that act because there's no resistance to being virtuous in that way. But if I had been virtuous in that way, 300 years ago, there would have been a great amount of resistance to being virtuous in that way. And had I done something like assist the underground railroad or, or hunt the uh, runaway slave catchers, like there would have probably been a great deal of sort of happiness to be gained from acting virtuously in those ways. So my second part two of my answer is that it makes me happy. Why, why does it make me happy? I don't know. Don't care. And that's a uh, that's pretty much the exact same answer Aristotle gave in his Eudaimonian Ethics. You know, I mean, like 
what is eudaimonia. It is both the the gain of having the good life, which comes with its own perks, and the the conscious knowing of the good life. I think that's that's really that's what I seek. I seek a eudaimonia. Now, I don't think I would find it through. Uh, er- sorry, I said eudaimonian. I meant Nicomedian ethics, but um, through I don't think I would find it through his Nicomedian ethics. But I do th- understand exactly what you mean from the perspective of that 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 virtue. Um, and and like you said, you know, this is this is not like a an is by which oughts can be <laughs> produced, right? Yeah. But it, it's a yeah. it's just a the mental state of, of the person who acts in it. And this is something that I find in. A, people either have one of these two answers or both. I haven't really found anything that's like super off the wall yet. It's like, I see a lot of utility in this and it makes sense. It's like, great. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Or it's, it feels subjectively like this is the right thing for me to do. I personally, you know, in the subjective sense, like we were talking about, this is, this is like where I am. And if it is right, because it is right for me. And Mm. Great, you know, um, and then if you blend the two together, even better, you know, you've you found your 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 niche, and, and as long as that doesn't, as long as those motivations don't closet you off from continued developments or exploration to become more virtuous in the future, more correct in your assertions of of reality and how you live in it, then what do you lose, right? Um, you just can't get lost in the bliss, I suppose. Is what I'm trying to say. Um, mm. Yeah, and so uh, the concepts good and evil uh, and moral philosophy in general, these are all things that, just to bring it back to the state of nature, these are all things that we have invented with our minds and applied and layered on top of reality uh, for the purposes of interacting more efficiently, probably from an evolutionary perspective uh, in terms of its utility. But um this doesn't mean that reality contains these these concepts. It doesn't. Uh, it's not part of space or atoms or uh, quantum theory. Like this is all stuff that that only exists in our heads. That uh, is outside of and comes after the state of nature. And then and then the other thing that we went into detail. So I won't do it again. Is that um, this is the point where most moral philosophies that have gone wrong go wrong is right here at this point. When you take one step from what is reality to what you should do, it's right here. This is Hume's guillotine happens right after state of nature. Uh, yeah. That, that feels like a good conclusion uh, for me. Do you have any other, I'm, I'm happy. I'm not trying to end the show either. I'm just, yeah. Uh, yeah. If you have anything else you want to talk about, I'm happy to. No, I think, um, I think that was a good way to put it. <clears throat> Well, I if I had anything to add, just to kind of capstone the conversation again, like this is level one, and you know we talked about natural rights, but there's even more that we could have gone into on in the perspective of natural rights, and I'm sure it will come up again in future conversations. Like inevitably, um, as people probably saw, this is the start of season three, and the reason that I did that was because I wanted to focus at least the next few episodes on like building the foundation. Cause I feel like it's, n- it's something I never really did. Even after I became a voluntarist, I just dropped right in. Like, all right, let's start talking about the nap. It's like, in my opinion, the best way for a- anybody who isn't already aware to like, to 
uh, amplify the subjective compulsion is to understand why these things are the way they are, not just to, you know, intuit them in a sense, uh, to, to actually get into the weeds. And that may not be for everybody. That's fine. But it's something that it, once we get into video form, I can have for as long as is valid, you know? Um, so in the future, you know, things like the rules of logic, universalizability, all of these things are going to come up and build up this picture before. And the goal is at some point, and then the closing statement will be, and that's voluntarism, you know? <laughs> and that's, that's, that's kind good. of the, the mission. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take. We may have some episodes in between where we talk about stuff that isn't necessarily on that track, but that's kind of uh, what I've been motivated to do in a sense is to get that, that encapsulation. Uh, and, you know, next time anybody asks me about questions on the state of nature, I'd be more than happy to answer them, but I will definitely say, Hey, there's a great video on the internet about the state of nature. You should probably watch it. It's pretty good. So, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm happy to come back for any of these videos that you're interested in having me for, for, uh, you're one of the few people that, um, I can enjoy a really good nerdy philosophy conversation with. Uh, I did think of one more thing I wanted to say to the natural law adherence, because I know that that's a lot of the audience uh, of mine. I, I'm assuming for your channel as well, being voluntarist related. Um, it's sort of like a salve. It's like, look, I know we gave you some bitter pills, but also the conclusions end up mostly being the same. Yeah. So even though we can't derive objective morality from the, from the fabric of reality or objective morality from the fabric of morality. Um, I think once we try and apply the rules of logic, uh, sorry, the rule, the, the, the three, the big three rules of reason, uh, the first principles of reason, uh, however you want to say it, whatever the fucking <laughs> formal name you want to use for the, the rules you know, of logic or identity, identity, non-contradiction, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Uh, once you apply that, the principle of consistency, the principle, you know, non-arbitrariness and universalizability, you end up with uh, an equation to judge behavior that looks very much like the same conclusions that you get from natural law. So it's not as bad as it might sound in the beginning. And I wish somebody had told me that back when I was first starting. Yeah. If you're already a voluntarist and, you know, again, like, please do your own research. Like I, I, if if you still have any doubts, like continue doing some reading, you know, read both sides of the conversation, read, watch the video again, really try to take apart what we said. I would highly, especially if it's something you strongly believe in, because that, if, if we were managing to convince you, that would be the way that you could be the most sure that you weren't just being duped or something. And that's the last thing that I want to happen from anybody watching one of my videos. And like Patrick was saying, the if you're already a voluntarist, the, the pill is bitter, but it is actually quite small. <laughs> like you were saying, the conclusions are, if you're already a voluntarist, the, the, the end is the same. It, it is the same end. Uh, it, it's just how you get there is a little different and you know, it, it tastes bad, but I promise it's not even that big of a pill really. <laughs> well, here's what it comes down to. And this might be worthy of discussion. Um, at least some, right? Here's what it comes down to. There are people in the world that, that want to respect your rights. And there are people in the world that do not. That is a statement of reality. That is a, that is a statement of fact. Yeah. And it's obvious to see there's plenty of evidence. I think that's a sound statement. Um, you want to find and associate with 
no matter whether or not natural law exists in reality or not, you still want to find and associate with the people that actually respect your rights as you conceive of them. And the only difference between what you're wanting to do and finding good people that respect your rights and staying away from the people that don't, the only difference between a a layering natural law over the top of that as defining the rights that you want to find people to respect is and, and what we're saying, which is that, look, you and I can agree to make up a right to whatever we want. And as long as it's consensual between us, then it is just as valid as whatever you're calling natural law, because in effect, that's kind of what natural law is. You guys agree on the laws between yourself and you disassociate from people that don't respect them like those are the bad guys. We're saying we're doing the same thing. It's just that we're getting rid of that little spook to use the term spook, right? We're we're getting rid of that one ghost in the machine that doesn't actually exist, which is the actual what are the rights on the list of rights? Like that is not in reality. The rest we can figure out between us and we can associate with the people that want to respect the the rights that are important to us. And luckily, 99.9% of humanity we're talking self-ownership and private property or, or property. Let's just say um, <laughs> not, not to open that can of worms, but yeah, yeah. I, it's not as bad as it sounds. Yeah. And uh, maybe uh, I, I feel compelled though. Maybe this is not valid to say, but if, if you look at like, if you are someone who's natural rights and you're listening or watching this, I'm assuming it comes from a Lockean justification. That's that's the overwhelming majority of people. And if you look at Locke's justification, he views actions that are uh, implicit in the state of nature as being these the basis for these natural rights. And what that entails is a sense of reciprocity, right? It's like the, the state of nature and the things within it have agreed – that if you take their things, they will fight you to get them back, right? So in a sense, you know, there's the, the only – you could still reach this same conclusion with almost the same justifications, but instead of uh, – I don't want to say pretend because that sounds very condescending. But instead of acting as though they are these objective pieces of reality, you're just acknowledging the fact that these are just subjective preferences of the state of nature beings, that's really it, it, it. That's the major distinction. And maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's not too far of a disconnect to make. Something that bothers me um, is that some people will say property is created by violence. Like you don't have property if you will not use violence to defend it. Um, I think that is 180 degrees incorrect. I think a state of nature property doesn't exist. If somebody is associating with you in the state of nature, there's no such thing as property. There's just somebody that's going to attack you and you're going to respond with state of nature force of your own to defend yourself or what's important to you. You're in a state of nature. Property doesn't exist. You're just two monkeys fighting over the coconut or, or banana or whatever. the fuck. Um, property is respect, is civilization. It is elevating yourself into a moral philosophy. Property only exists between people that have agreed for it to do so. Um, and that goes for humans as well as animals. Obviously, the squirrel will steal my nut and so will and the asshole will steal my package off the, the patio. In either of those instances and interactions, property doesn't exist because they have they have 
degraded themselves back down into a state of nature and you need to interact with those entities on on the level that they deserve. What is the saying? Um, I treat people how I want to be treated when I first meet them. And after that, I treat them how they treat me. And um, that that gives them the chance to test to see if they're going to elevate themselves or be one of the people that are going to choose to elevate themselves. And if they're not, well, then treat them as they treat you, right? Which is oftentimes state of nature type stuff, right? It's one of the beauties of voluntarism. Um, a friend of mine who I engage with philosophical discussions in on the regular, who used to hate philosophy, which I think is fun now. I, we've just talked about it so much that he started reading it and all this sorts of stuff. When I first like pitched voluntarism to him, the first thing he said is like, wow, well, that's really simple, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, like really, like, you could tie a lot of ideas that people just associate with like good behavior back to voluntarism, like a golden rule in a sense. Do unto others as you would have done unto yourself is essentially the same as as uh, the the reciprocity until aggression, right? Like you, you don't assume somebody walking down the street is going to aggress against you. You have no reason to believe they're a state of nature being until they prove they are, right? And and so that kind of goes back to the same thing. And they do the same for you. And really, it is kind of it is kind of beautiful in a sense. But that also works in the direction that you know, we're not trying to. Create and I and I, you know, uh, <laughs> lumped us together again. But the, there's no attempt to create a some grand plan for solving all philosophy, like I was talking about. It almost has to be simple, otherwise, at some point, there's going to be a contradiction, or there's going to be something contrived, or there's going to be arbitrariness. Because as the web gets weaved wider and wider, you have more chances for these knots to appear. But uh, again, it wasn't necessarily designed to be super simple it could have been the most complicated moral philosophy in the world but it just so happens that it really is pretty boilerplate when you think about it <laughs> well for it to be for it to function universal universally it would need to be pretty freaking simple if it was complicated it would probably not be universalizable yeah exactly i was criticized i was criticized for using um a piece of language in a way that i just heard you use and i was criticized in a way that proves the point. And so I think it bears talking about, um, you said you called somebody a state of nature being. Yeah. Uh, that's something I use often. Me too. Uh, it's a powerful statement. And why is it powerful? Because it's dehumanizing. And that's the criticism that I got when I used it, uh, in front of one person that's really dehumanizing language. And I was like, you're exactly precisely correct. Yeah. You know, if I'm, if somebody, if somebody is, is acting like an animal that is acting inhuman, they're acting below their capacities. So they, yes, I'm dehumanizing them. I'm reducing them to an animal, just like all the other animals, uh, because of their, because they're behaving like one. And, um, yeah, I, I just thought that that was a criticism that, Proves the point, so to speak. That was exactly, that's the point. We don't want to be like all the other animals because that's a dangerous, unsafe, uh, stressful way to live. We want to elevate ourselves using using our capacities that we have in here, right? I don't think anybody wants to be the squirrel in a world full of humans. I'm just saying. Uh, you know, you don't. You don't want to be the squirrel in that scenario. Uh, maybe some of you androids right. disagree. Maybe you guys want to be squirrels. But 
you know, <laughs> um, yeah. it's not for me. Uh, it's, it's not for me. I like the, the, the freedoms that, well, that's another thing too, that people will say is that it's like inherently restrictive, but there are liberties also in uh, a mutual understanding of reciprocity with other people too. It, you know, obviously we have to operate as if we're in a state of nature and perhaps, you know, at this point we're getting a little out of the scope of the conversation, but I do, you know, since we're on this train, I think it's important to, to note that like there, there are liberties in understanding reciprocity and being around people who you have good faith will reciprocate rights with you. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't have to worry about if I leave my phone around and Patrick is nearby that my phone is going to disappear because he took it. There's a, there's a, there are in are liberties in that, that, you know, I, I can do those things because I don't have to worry about X, Y, Z people. Um, and, and I think it's called that's civilization. Yeah. Civilization comes out of reciprocity. Yeah. It, it, all, all modern society is, is a poor attempt, a very poor attempt to, um, coerce a bunch of people to reciprocate one set of rights. Uh, so the reason why it works is not because of the forced centralized version of that, the coerced version of that, the, the, the efficacy of it comes from the actual core concepts itself that we're espousing. Yep. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, that was, that was literally the end. So your timing was perfect, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, we covered a lot. I feel like that was a, a really good place to end on. Um do you have anything else you'd like to say? Any announcements or anything you want to get out before we wrap this up? No, no, it's good, man. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed chatting with you anytime. Well, without a doubt, I will be tapping you at some point in the f future to come and uh, have this conversation again. What's that? Phrasing? What's that? Phrasing? No, I said I will. I will tap you at some point in the future. You to tap me. Come. Oh, you're gonna uh, tap me. <laughs> God, see, I should have known. I've had enough conversations with you now that I, I should have known that. Uh, I will call on you again for your expertise.